Welcome to Ag Vic Talk, keeping you up to date with information from Agriculture Victoria. Turning manure into power probably was not on the priority list of many farmers back in the 1980s. Melville Charles from Berry Bank Farm in southwestern Victoria was the exception. Arguably, he was also a bit of a visionary, travelling to Europe with his son Jock to learn how bioenergy was being produced. Returning home, they had a system built that not only produced power, but it also ended up changing their business. To find out how, Jock Charles joins me for this AgVic Talk podcast. Thanks for your time. Oh, thanks for having me, Drew. Jock, you're in the piggery game. It's a family business, isn't it? The family's been involved for a while? Uh, the family's been on the farm for a, a long while, Drew, on the fifth generation, but the, um, the piggery side of it started back in the early 70s when my father embarked on um, moving from a traditional sheep farm into the big business. Five generations, that's quite a legacy to say the least, Jock. So is the piggery side of the business the main game now for the farm? Well, interesting question. The piggery side of the business is still very important. On the back of this sort of biogas plant that we built 30 years ago, we've formed our fertiliser business that sells potting mixes and composts and packaged products into the garden industry. And that's probably a little bit larger than the piggery now, that side of the business. The piggery is quite central to it though, Jock, and you said you went down the biogas side and I want to find out more about that in a moment. But are piggeries big users of power? Piggeries are big users of power in that um, you need a fair bit of heat, particularly when the, the pig is young, to sort of maintain their body temperature. And they also use quite a lot of power in the production of the, the feed, so milling and mixing the grains. Chuck, you said you went and started on this journey in terms of the biogas side of it over 20 years ago. What prompted that move? I've got to credit this with my father, who always had a bit of a fascination for the concept of turning manure into power. He used to follow what was happening overseas. And then uh, 33 years ago, we met an Italian fellow by the name of Pietro Andrioli, who was an agricultural scientist. He'd married an Australian and he was looking for a farm to set up a pilot type plant with this anaerobic digestion concept he had. So the result of that was my father and I travelling to Italy, visiting some of the work that he'd been involved with in Italy and seeing some of the plants and then um, coming back and thinking that we could do this. So what is an anaerobic digester and how does it work? The simplest way drew to explain what an anaerobic digester is to say it's it's an extension of the stomach in that um, food in a pig's gut or a human's gut only is in there for a limited amount of time so what comes out the other end is not entirely broken down in fact most of it's not so by providing the same conditions as are present in a stomach as in the um, the temperature you get to break the product or the food down for much, much longer until it's sort of basically totally exhausted. The byproduct of all this is that there's a heap of bacteria working away. The main ones are methanogenous bacteria that are chewing away on this food and then um, they produce a byproduct being biogas, which contains a lot of methane. 
You described that very well, but I'm assuming there's quite a bit of technology involved. I've seen a picture of you at a control panel, and it looks a bit like the Starship Enterprise. I'm guessing you've got big tanks and things like that to capture all this. Correct. We have two tanks. The first tank is the one we call the primary digester, and that is really the extension of the stomach. That's the one where we're providing those ideal conditions and heating it up to that 37 degrees, which the bacteria like to work at. The concept's very simple, but to make it work effectively, there's obviously a lot of challenges. But really what you're trying to do is provide an environment at the right temperature that's stirred, and then the bacteria will do the job for you. And providing those right conditions too, I would imagine requires a fairly costly piece of infrastructure. Oh, correct, correct. Look, there are shortcuts you can take and easier ways than the road we went down. Ours is what they call an engineered biodigester, so it's a steel tank. Um, Back in 1990, when we started the job, we set a budget of one and a half million, and I think it ended up costing closer to two. So... I suppose 30 years ago, that's uh, that's what uh, it's a big sum of money, but 30 years ago it was a substantial investment for us. There are other options you can take, basically sort of putting covers over ponds in the ground and collecting the gas that way, but we just felt the engineered system was a far more complete and thorough system and likely to last a lot longer. Well, yes, it was a lot of money back then, but in terms of your return on investment, have you paid for the power? The power alone will not sort of pay for these systems. All, having said that at the moment, the way power prices are moving, that could well be the case. In Europe, the power costs were substantially higher, so that's why these systems had begun taking place over in Europe well before they came to Australia. Uh, there were sort of more incentives in place over there to do this type of thing as well. And a lot of them were community-owned. A, a group of businesses would own them or a council would own them different organisations would send their waste there and then the power was sold back into the local grid or the gas was used to dry different products and things as well. So in terms of those economics and the power, you're sort of saying, well, okay, overseas they were subsidised, but that wasn't the primary reason that you did this. There was a number of reasons we did it. One was, it seems odd, but my father, as I mentioned before, was fascinated with the concept of being able to make electricity out of pig manure. So that seems a strange reason to spend two million, but um, he was also a bit of an innovator too, and I think sometimes the thirst for innovation drove him a fair bit. The other benefits we could see was that we really wanted to use the manure in a better fashion on our cropping program. We were very limited in where and when we could use raw manures to fertilise our crops, and there was also problems with weed seeds, etc., coming up through the use of raw manures. So we we suspected there would be considerable benefit there and there was also some general sort of environmental reasons like improvements to the soil as I've mentioned, obviously a reduction in odour because we could eliminate the ponds where the manure was traditionally stored. In turn this provided better conditions for our staff, probably a better relationship with our neighbours. There's a lot of flow-ons there, and I understand also you're significantly reducing greenhouse gas emissions because you're capturing the methane, and also I understand you're saving a lot more water. Yes, we can recycle a considerable amount of water, and I think there's about 10,000 tonne a year approximately of carbon dioxide equivalents that aren't going into the atmosphere as a result of the plant. That's a huge amount. I imagine, though, there's other considerations. You're creating a flammable gas. That's got safety issues around it. 
Yes, and you know you have to comply with Energy Safe Victoria. It is in this as far as how you store and reuse that. It's not pressurised, which helps a little bit. It's only operating at a low pressure, but there is potential for things to go wrong and you've got to make sure you're using the correct pipework. You've got flashback arresters, non-return valves and all these sort of things within the lines. And you said you're originally trying to use the fertiliser for your own production needs, but that's now become a substantial business within itself. Yes, it has. That's been a, a real success story that we probably didn't foresee going to the extent it did. I I was quite young when uh, we embarked on that. So that was sort of my first role was try and find a, a market for these products that were coming out of the digester and playing around mixing it with other items to try and break into that garden market where we thought there could be some nice returns. It's taken a, a long time, obviously, to get to that stage where we are now. And it's a massive sort of learning curve for a farmer to move into that sort of a business but it has been very successful and it's based around the fact that the product is very good. Jock this sounds like a very involved journey to get to this point. Do you think if you hadn't gone down this bioenergy path the piggery would still be running? I suspect not. I suspect that we're quite close to the township of Ballarat and some smaller towns are even closer to us and Most piggeries are far more remote than us, piggeries of this size, so I think it would have been very hard to have stayed in business for as long as we have without the biodigester. That's the odour side of it, but it sounds like economically it's stacked up for you as well. Yeah, that's a very good point. The pig industry has gone through some incredibly hard times in the last 25 years, and there were certainly some of those more recent times that have been tough. The the other side of the business, being this garden products business, has allowed us to weather the storm. Lastly, do you have any key piece of advice you give to any farmer considering going on their own energy journey? I think getting as involved in the process as you can is probably the key message. I'd like to say that um, to just try and do this by buying a turnkey system, I think it's got trouble written all over it really because... Um, It does need buy-in from the farmer, who's ultimately the person that's going to end up with this asset on their property, to make sure that it works. And I think farmers have a vast amount of knowledge on like their byproducts and their waste products that perhaps the engineering companies that may sell these type of systems don't have. So I think it certainly needs good engineering companies, but it does need a lot of buy-in from the farmers to make sure that they're really involved in the whole process. For Jock Charles, the quest to produce bioenergy has dramatically changed their business. And arguably, the starting point was what to do with a byproduct. Another farmer who's pondered this same question is Andrew Lang. As part of his farm in southwestern Victoria, he has wood plantations. He wanted to find a use for the waste when the trunks were harvested. It was a question that's led him to roles in bioenergy organisations in Australia and internationally. Uh, It came in through doing a Churchill Fellowship study trip looking at uh, farm forestry and how farm forestry is managed around the world. And I kept on, particularly in Europe, tripping over this whole thing of all the forestry residues going to energy production, might be heat, might be heat and power. And then gradually I became more and more interested in this. And in 2008, I was at a 
conference in Sweden, the World Bioenergy Conference, and they were they were forming the World Bioenergy Association then, and I somehow got co-opted to represent this part of the world, Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific, and it went on from there. Andrew, that's quite an involvement. I just want to take one step back. What are you farming? Is what you're farming got a particular bent towards the need for bioenergy, or is it just a broader desire and interest? Well, we are a fairly regulation sort of mixed farming operation here, slightly larger maybe than usual with about 800 hectares of cropping and in the order of 15 to 18,000 fine wool merinos, but with a whole lot of farm forestry plantings in among that dating from 1994 with blue gums and then 2000 with other commercial saw log woodlot production. Right, so I can see the relationship there and then in terms of the interest with the forestry side of your property and bioenergy. Can you just clarify what bioenergy actually is? A simple explanation. Well, all living matter is biomass, including you and me, but bioenergy is a matter of how you turn that biomass into energy. So any wood fire is a is a biomass to heat example. Pig manure to uh, heat and power is uh, bioenergy. Uh, straw, if you burn it in the in the paddock, it's it's bioenergy, but it's energy going to waste. Whereas if you burn it in a furnace, it's energy being utilised to heat and power. So it's that simple. Andrew, I'm assuming then you're seeing with the forestry side of your property, well, yes, we can harvest these trees for a certain amount, but then I guess there's a whole lot of leftover stuff. Is that what got you thinking down this path? It's certainly the case. And as much as that, it was the burning of the stubbles before re-sowing. And uh, so we would be burning maybe three or 4,000 tonnes of straw. And with the plantation harvest, we're also doing a thinning process maybe eight or 10 years after planting. And it's very hard to find a market for that thinning. And it would be great if you could chip it up and send it off to the local combined heat and power plant in Ballarat or Camperdown or wherever and um, be able to sell that for better than cost neutral. So that was part of what I was going looking for in Europe when I was on one of these travel grants. Well, in terms of that opportunity to sell it, I do understand you've seen that happen with a local hospital. Ah, uh, yeah, the Beaufort Hospital, they converted from heating with LPG to heating with wood chip and more than halved their, their cost of energy. And it's been an outstanding success for maybe six or seven years now, with almost no hiccup. And this isn't just a niche curiosity, is it? I mean, your experiences in Sweden showed this being applied on a broad scale, I understand. Ah, true. And, and Sweden is an example of a country like Germany and Denmark. Bioenergy is a major part of their renewable energy consumed to 60-70%. But in Sweden, it's the largest single source of energy, more than nuclear, more than coal, more than oil, more than gas. And so Sweden is one country that shows just what the potential is. And uh, Australia could be well down that path if we'd had a bit better policy going back a decade or two. Andrew, can you just clarify something for me, though? I can see you saying, yep, we can take this stuff, we can burn it, we can turn it into energy. But aren't you releasing carbon in that process? Isn't that just as bad? You are, but the point is that anything that you do burn or 
put into an anaerobic digester is only there because it's absorbed carbon dioxide out of the air in the growing process or in the process of producing the grain for the pig that produces the manure that goes into the anaerobic digester. So in that tree growing or in that wheat plant growing, it's reduced the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by that amount. And so in your conversion of it back to energy, you're releasing carbon dioxide, yes, but you are A, replacing the use of fossil fuels to produce that carbon dioxide, and you're only returning to the atmosphere what was taken in from the atmosphere in order for the plant to grow. So it is essentially a zero net carbon addition to the atmosphere. It's a very important distinction, isn't it? Clearly required for me because, yeah, fossil fuels, that carbon's been locked up for millions of years, whereas you were saying, well, this is more of a closed loop system. It's very much closed loop. And as the other countries that have developed this in a much bigger scale realise that they can, by by having, say, a straw-fired combined heat and power plant, they can megawatt by megawatt replace a coal or gas-fired combined heat and power plant. So you can have a complete 100% conversion from one to the other, whereas with wind and solar, it's it's a much more complex and uh, difficult thing to be able to work out how the the energy of the wind and solar can replace the energy of the fossil fuel generation systems. Andrew, have you got any other examples of bioenergy production? I was in Denmark and found out that there was a an ethanol production plant beside a what at that time was a coal-fired power station. And so I wangled myself an invitation. I went into this and it was taking in 35,000 tonnes of straw, chopping it up in a hammer mill, putting it into a, a steam chamber that would hit it with a a blast of high temperature, high pressure steam. And that basically broke the straw down so it could be worked away on by yeasts to turn into ethanol. And so 35,000 tonnes of straw going in the beginning, various sugars being released and lignin. And the main thing was that it was producing about 5 million litres a year of fuel grade ethanol that was then used for putting into the petrol in Denmark for reducing their emissions from Uh, the petroleum side of things. So that was a fermentation process. But the point is that bioenergy really has three main outputs, heat, power and transport fuels, about six different technologies and uh, dozens of potential feedstocks. So it's a very flexible, very scalable, quite cost effective and one of our suite of renewable energy technologies. Andrew, lastly, what would be your key advice for farmers who are undertaking an energy journey? Basically, start doing the research. In Europe, every time I've gone out on one of these field trips from conferences, say, we would go and visit an energy farmer, someone who might have switched completely from dairy farming to producing heat and power, or producing wood chip to sell to another buyer somewhere in the market. And in one case, it was a potato farmer in Denmark who had planted his entire farm back to hybrid willow that he was then harvesting to go off and be a a feedstock for a combined heat and power plant. And so there are all these people who are starting to make a living out of energy from their farm. And that other instance of dairy farmers or pig farmers having their manure go into an anaerobic digester to become heat and power. So that whole thing of farmers being energy producers is, is alive and really growing well in, in Europe and, and other parts of the world. The systems and equipment are there for sale. It's a matter of scale and sometimes it's a matter of teaming up with a group of other like-minded farmers to combine all of those products, whether it's wood chip or straw. 
Andrew, that's quite a shift in mentality, isn't it, really? Thinking of farmers as energy producers, but the way you map that out, it makes perfect sense. Andrew Lang, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us for this AgVic Talk podcast. Thanks, Drew. I'm really happy to have had this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you for listening to AgVic Talk. For more episodes in this series, find us and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria, authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.